Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. This week, a story from the Cold War, so, you know, not that long ago. And what a different world it was. There was that darkness on the horizon, the possibility of utter devastation. New Zealand, of course, involved in the Cold War, and oh, we made our stand of nuclear-free. That didn't please a lot of people. Uh, around the world, allies. But in any case, uh, this is a story about some engineers, which we shall be calling sappers, and their work in Russia during a time of high espionage. Uh, Jared Hindmarsh, good day. G'day, Graham. Yeah, this is a relatively modern story this week from the late 70s and uh, early 1980s. It's amazing what we got up to in Russia, actually, and how unaware many Kiwis are about this. And, of course, we're unaware of it because all the files were destroyed, Graham. They're not even in existence. And, amazingly, not only did the Defence Department destroy them, but Archives New Zealand were coerced into destroying them also when some of them made them into their files. So it was a time of incredible subterfuge and a sort of a limited number of Defence Department personnel got caught up in this in a very secret way and they've never really received any kind of justice or recognition for this until very recently actually. Because they were thought to not exist. Basically, just not exist. There was no record of their service whatsoever. They were all under the understanding when they went off that they would just go off the map. And you see this in terms of some other countries. I read about America with its servicemen in Laos during the Vietnam War. They were just completely off the record. And you think, how could a country do this? And then you realise we did exactly the same thing. And the mission of these sappers, or Royal New Zealand Engineers, was so secret that all their files were destroyed. Now, there was about 30 of them went up there. There were about 120 New Zealand Defence personnel that were involved on several tours of duty. As I said, their existence was just wiped off the mat. And these guys, I reckon, Graham, fit into outsiders' profile of the show very well because they were almost ostracised. And from our sort of Defence Force society, and they were ignored and even fought by the establishment right up to this year, really, when they were given some recognition that the Embassy Security Guard Force was, in fact, on active service. Now, you've got to remember about the Cold War. It was never a recognised conflict. And these guys were actually put in harm's way. There's one person I'm going to profile. He's only one of the crew, Ian Les Stobie. He lives in Australia now, but we've been in quite a lot of contact and I've sort of pieced his story together. It's I always get a feeling when I do these stories, like a feeling, an overall feeling from every story. There's one of bravery or recognition or pride in one's country. But you know, with this, I feel quite pissed off that these guys have been put through the hoop so bad, they really have. And I think it's time that some of their stories got told, but Ian Lee's Stobies is one out of the box. And to think that he fought, has fought so long to get a better recognition. 
As I said, we must remember the Cold War against the USSR at that time was never a recognised conflict. It was seen as a political war, but it was for our Defence Department force in Moscow. There were about 120 altogether got sent, although only about 36 Royal Engineers. I just wouldn't mind going back at a couple of cases, really, because it sort of uh, you've got to see this in a in a broad outlook, and it's really shameful what some of our military vets have to go through. They spend soul-destroying decades trying to prove their ailments, and what they're after often is a disablement pension, which they feel like they deserve. You know, there's a lot of these military pensions going on. I think there's about 19,000 welfare transactions last year to ex-Defence Department personnel. They are a result, these disablements, of active service, and they're only after a very meagre disability allowance to live on. Now, last November, we had the landmark case of an elderly New Zealand naval veteran. He was awarded disability compensations for Parkinson's brought on by chemical poisoning incurred during the 1948 to 1960 Malayan emergency. But, you know, that's the reality of that. It was just one of seven separate claims awarded against Veteran Affairs New Zealand last year. And the cases all mount up and claimants all have to fight long and hard to prove their related injuries. And, of course, the burden of proof is always stacked against them. I think the most epic case is the one of Rotorua veteran Patrick Edwards, actually. He fought a 50-year fight. He's over 80 now. He won his fight against veteran affairs in the court, only to have them refuse to pay out his compensation because they said he was on the maximum already, and he had to appeal, and he got a poultry payout even though he was vindicated it was a very complex case now Edward served in the Malayan emergency he was going through a swamp bog down and he got spat in the eye by a poisonous cobra snake he was on deployment from April 1959 to May 62 now he was immediately helped by his comrades uh, extreme pain and couldn't see properly he sort of came right but his eyesight began failing and by the time he came home he, he was semi-blind and by 1989 he was totally blind. Now of course his war disablement pension was declined because it was considered a natural event. You know where do they send these guys into these jungle environments to fight and of course they'll get hit by a snake or something. And the, the army even had the nerve to infer that his blindness was typical of civilis related ailment. Would you believe it? Anyway that finally got removed on an appeal only about last year year, the reference to Sybilis, but he's been, and there was a reform in 2014 of laws relating to service, which enabled a lot of these appeals to finally get going. So what we've seen lately, Graham, is a kind of avalanche of these appeals. So we're probably going to see a lot more of them.
But the one stonewalled case, I think, is is that of retired Army engineer Ian Leslie Stobie. Now, his nickname's Les or Stove. He's been on the back foot right from the start because his Cold War era files, of course, from serving in Moscow, like all his other comrades, were destroyed by the Defence Department because they were deemed too sensitive and as a Royal New Zealand engineer or sapper as they're called working with spades but now of course they're any sort of engineer they work in very complex uh, areas of the military. Stobie got deployed in a dozen strong detachment which got sent to Moscow for the job of get a load of this refurbishing the New Zealand embassy and this embassy is in Moscow. Yeah, that's right. And it's a most fantastic embassy. It's uh, it's a sort of an Art Nouveau building, if you like. It was built for the mistress of a company owner. And it's the most magnificent building. It's got rounded arching gables and high windows. It's a sort of one of the really amazing buildings. It was a great score for New Zealand, actually, to find this building back in the uh, 60s. And it became our embassy there. But Ian Les Stoby, he was always looking for adventure, of course. He, he comes from a very proud family military tradition. His great uncle Cecil William Stoby was awarded a DCM with oak leaves, meaning that he was mentioned in dispatches. His brother Gerald Leslie McGregor Stoby was killed in action uh, August 18. His other brother was gassed in World War One, and Ian's own father served during World War Two, and his mother didn't want to sign the papers for his son to go to war, so he served in the West Coast Regiment, the Nelson Marlborough West Coast Regiment, but Cecil Stobie was with the 6th Reinforcement to Gallipoli, and he went to serve at the Western Front. So Ian Stobie has this amazing tradition. He's got a family tradition of loyalty and service to this country. That's what he put forward all the time. So it was no surprise after Ian Stobie left school, he took up an apprenticeship with the New Zealand Electricity Department at age 16, but he also immediately signed up as a territorial There was no doubt of his engineering ability and his keenness for service. He obviously had expertise and he was noticed for this. He was approached to go to Moscow in a small force of engineers. Now, this required quite a bit of briefing and training, not only for him, but all his family, because they were told that he would essentially be going to a foreign place where there was not going to be a lot of support. There was no way he was going to be able to communicate with his family except through a letter that went in a diplomatic bag. They weren't allowed phone calls. They weren't allowed anything. This was going to be a super secret mission and all the family was virtually sworn to secrecy about it. Because they weren't going there to refurbish this Art Nouveau building, they were going there to what? to protect it from infiltration. Their main job was to keep the embassy free of bugs. Now, this was a full-time job because hardly a day went past that the embassy wasn't infiltrated. Okay, this Cold War era outside his tale with Jared Hindmarsh. We'll take a short break and be back very shortly. You're tuned in. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Outside is with Jared Hindmarsh. The story of Lee Stobie. 
Sapper, uh, a sapper, that's an engineer in the army. And he is masquerading as a civilian engineer, uh, tacitly, to do some refurbishment at the embassy in Moscow. But they're actually there to protect the place from being bugged. And so, Jared. Now, you've got to remember, this was the height of the Cold War. And August 1978 to early 1980, this story. And uh, diplomatic missions in Moscow, of course, Western power ones and their allies, they came under surveillance attack. The English embassy even got breached, Graham, by a tunnel that went under the highway and up into the building. It took months, this tunnel, and they actually breached it and got some English embassy secrets. Now, the Australians had all their steel grill window bars hacksawed through their embassy at night, and they subsequently found the place full of bugs. We were in with the Allies, the British, and they knew that there was a lot of communications, a bit like the Five Eyes. They knew we were in on it, so our embassy was a prime target. And there's an interesting story by James Webb, actually. He was our ambassador in Russia, and he was actually expelled from Russia after we expelled the Soviet ambassador. We forget that all these sort of things went on, but James Weir, he died in 2012. He was a New Zealand professional diplomat. He was cross-accredited to all these other places that were sort of considered difficult, Cairo, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Saudi Arabia. He's a great man, actually, and his most notable appointment, though, was as ambassador to Moscow from 1970 to 1980 until he was expelled. Now this was when Ian Stobie was there and it was a he was expelled because we had a tit for tat really when the Soviet ambassador Savinsky was expelled for passing funds to the pro-Soviet Socialist Unity Party of New Zealand. I remember them. Of course you do. Their publication was The People's Voice. That's right. You know, and it was an interesting little story, actually. He was given 72 hours, the Russian ambassador, to leave the country. This was on the 24th of January, 1980. And what the New Zealand government maintained was that Savinsky had met the Socialist Unity Party National Secretary, his name was George Jackson, in an Auckland motel and handed over... $10,000 in cash. Now, the SIS had bugged the room, and they had it on the tape. Now, both parties strenuously denied that the referral to the money was actually about money, and that the money even changed hands. Now, Robert Muldoon made the final decision that there was sufficient sufficient evidence to expel the Russian diplomat and there were a lot of fears expressed by foreign affairs and trade at the time that USSR trade would be badly affected but all they did really was expel Jim Weir. It was a standoff. The publishing of Weir's memoirs opened up the whole files again. It was quite amazing actually. New Zealand was a a very small fish in the global sort of pond, but KGB knew that catching small spat, as they said, often led on to big game catches. So they went to great effort to bug the New Zealand embassy. And it was well known that Weir would go to bed every night with all the main secrets stashed in his pyjamas. Ho, ho, ho. Amazing, isn't it? 
And the KGB knew if they cracked the New Zealand embassy, then they had access to the classified info from the US embassy. And there was one interesting incident that became known from Weir's book was that they targeted a trade diplomat. His name was Ian Clark, a 34-year-old uh, New Zealander, an entrepreneurial man. Uh, he's still alive, actually. He'd gotten into a little rot up there. He used diplomatic status to accumulate large amounts of decoupons. Now, these were used in Russia as special currency by diplomatic staff to buy things that most Russians couldn't buy. Stereos, TV appliances, label designer clothes. And the KGB caught him in the act. He'd bought and sold four cars, this Clark. The KGB confronted the man with a mocked up article that was going to come out front page in Pravda the following day. And they alluded to him that his son was going to be in serious danger unless he cooperated. Now, this was when Clark freaked. And he alerted the embassy. And in the basement of the embassy, this was in Ware's book, Ware said, Jim Ware, the ambassador, said he was watching a film with the army sappers, actually, which we'll uh, go on into in a minute. When he, he got past a note, it said, our friends have set up a case against Mr. X to get access to the facilities. Now, Ware recalls he knew immediately what this message meant, and, and he watched the rest of the movie in a days. Clark and his family were escorted to the airport immediately, flown back to New Zealand. Clark settled back as a, a senior agricultural and fisheries man. I think he's got a lifestyle block up there in like Masterton somewhere, but just one of the remarkable tales from Moscow. All right, so the engineers work here. Yeah, the engineer's job was to keep the place secure. They lived in the basement of the building, and in particular, their job was to sweep the whole embassy building for listening devices. Now, Ian Stobie was one of these people. Now, all were under no misunderstanding that their mission was top secret. I said so secret that the official capacity for them was that they were seconded to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs as civilian contracting workers for the term of their assignment. They were knew that they were up for it as soon as they arrived in Moscow. They were completely searched. Now, Stobie had two tours of duty in Moscow, first as a private and then as a lance corporal. That was from August 1978 to early 1980. Things were extremely tense and the Russians didn't treat these embassy newcomers very well. As Stobie recalls it, we were put in harm's way from day one, getting a taste of what was to come on our arrival when all our gear was ripped apart by border officials. It was constant harassment from there on. Now, the group's posting became very psychologically challenging for the sappers. They were without diplomatic immunity or protection or even Defence Department status. They certainly weren't armed. They were set up as military personnel dressed in civilians' clothing, working as civilians on secondment. And it was all about command and authority of the military behind the Iron Curtain. No communication with spouses or families at home was permitted, except via diplomatic post bags once a week. Any dialogue the men had concerning the embassy could only be conveyed in low voices 
outside because the place was almost certainly bugged and monitored 24-7. They noticed that as soon as they went out they were watched and everywhere they went in Moscow they were followed and they were regularly approached by probable KGB agents, real trench coat type diplomacy this was. Ian Stobie told me that the two groups of surveillance people that surveillance them, they went basically into two groups. Ones that were suggestive of them giving secrets, you know, would you like to tell us or how long have you been working there, just trying to find information. And the other half were <clears throat> completely aggressive and tried to pick fights with them. It became a matter of constantly watching well, their back. Often date. they were just downright menacing these occasions and several of them got roughed up whenever they were out. So going out was a big deal. If they wanted to go out or go and see sightseeing or go down to the Red Square or anything else, it was a big deal because they knew that one of them might come home a bit bashed up and there was nothing they could do about it. So the difficult position that they're in is that they are tacitly civilians, so they don't have any of the diplomatic or military support, but they are military. Yeah, that's right. And there was also a sort of an internal thing as well, Graham, which was that without the ambassador, New Zealand's ambassador had been expelled, there was no kind of oversight of them. And they were treated, I wouldn't say second rate by Ministry of Foreign Affairs officials, but they definitely weren't part of the diplomatic community. No, well, they couldn't be recognised, otherwise the game would be up. Exactly. They were just treated as security guards, if you like, and given very little status by anyone. It was not a pleasant situation for them to be in. No. Well, this isn't that much fun in Moscow for these engineers. The story of Les Stobie. We'll take a break and be back very shortly. Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. The story of Les Stobie, a uh, military engineer, a sapper, who's been posted to our embassy in the Soviet Union, as it was at the time, uh, under disguise of just being a civilian contractor tasked with doing some refurbishments refurbishments and in big inverted commas and it's not as if the soviet's going oh well that's all right <laughs> they're under some pressure jared yeah that's right the russians were absolute masters of planting bugs in the new zealand embassy there was hardly a day went past that it wasn't infiltrated astoundingly it was guarded by all these sappers but they were pulling wall linings off left right and center and of course another thing they were pulling these wall linings off graham and they were all full of asbestos they were subject to harm in many ways they couldn't go outside even their work inside was dangerous but one device that was found in our embassy only days after the dining room where the sappers worked had been cleared it was behind a ceiling vent and no one could figure out how the hell they had planted that when men had been around guarding the place the whole time now that bug is now held by the gcsb secret spy museum in wellington interestingly huh well but they would have thought it must be an inside job yeah, well, they could have thought that, but the Russians were very good at this, and all the embassies reported much the same thing. Workmen tried to just walk in and do things, pull out panels. It was just astounding, the gall the Russians had. Now, Stobie's defining event would come in a rundown Moscow hospital, actually, after he fell painfully ill with acute 
appendicitis in February 1980. Now, rather than be evacuated to a hospital in Helsinki or London, like his usual Commonwealth medical scheme would have ensured, uh, Stobie found himself just taken by embassy car to Moscow's sprawling public hospital, which is Kroptoshinskaya. Of course, because he wasn't considered a military personnel, he wasn't eligible for evacuation. Now, this is very unusual. There is always some scheme in place when you go somewhere. If you're assigned somewhere, you're attended to by medical personnel, and then you're usually, if it's serious enough, evacuated to a certain place. Now, anyone serving in Russia, the place was Helsinki or London that you would be medically evacuated. Because Stobie wasn't considered military personnel, just a contractor, he was just taken by embassy car and dumped at the hospital. It just seems unbelievable, really. Now they had to do that because they um, it would have blown his cover. Otherwise, of course, exactly. And Stobie wonders why he can't really explain why he wasn't given protection in the hospital. At least, would someone have stayed with them? Or, but basically, there were no means spare for such a detail because they were so busy at the embassy. And secondly, they didn't have a clue of the danger of where they were sending him because as soon as he left that hospital they would have been followed without a doubt. Now Stobie went into surgery and he remembers being wheeled into a smaller one-bed room after that. Now this is, you can imagine this hospital, Graham, incredibly basic, huge sprawling hospital. I mean the nurses would have been wonderful, couldn't really understand too many people. He felt like he was in a very foreign environment, a really run-down sort of place. You can just imagine this sort of sprawling Russian hospital. All he remembers is that after being in this room for a small time, two men came in and immediately shut the door. And uh, he was totally befuddled, just waking up, basically. Together, they grabbed his left shoulder and left forearm and then roughly injected him with a needle and syringe. Now, this is his quote. It was sheer terror. They injected me while I struggled in extreme fear and excruciating pain, not knowing what the hell was happening. Now, he says he screamed. No one came to help him. Of course, they wouldn't, would they? If the KGB had come into the uh, hospital and said, we've just got to see someone, why would anyone intervene? And uh, for the next however long, they interrogated him. Now, using chemical interrogation is nothing new, Graham, of course. The truth drugs and police work, it's similar to the sort of accepted psychiatric practice of narcoanalysis, they call it. There are a few drugs that are used, and the Russians were very good at this technique back then. They used it a lot, and I think it's still used today, of course. Uh, they called it truth serum. It's a colloquial name for any of the range of psychoactive drugs used in effect to obtain information from subjects who are sort of unable to or unwilling to provide it otherwise and their effect doesn't completely inhibit a subject's ability 
They more slow the speed at which the body sends messages from your spinal cord to the brain, but you become so relaxed that you just answer the questions. And of course, this sort of technique, I mean, it's nothing new, Graham. I mean, they had Ian Stovey in hospital, unguarded. He was a sitting duck. What did he say? All he remembers is that he was in a total haze. He can't remember being interrogated? No, he can't remember. All he remembers is that it probably went on, judging from the uh, the time and everything, that maybe it was five hours or so, and that he felt totally abandoned. Now, the New Zealand Embassy was ringing the hospital for medical updates, of course, and, of course, they were being told all the time that he was fine and recovering. So it wasn't until about two days later that one of his mates turned up at the hospital to see how he was. And it was absolutely shocked to hear the story. Concerns were immediately raised and Stoby was finally retrieved after four and a half days in the hospital by the embassy staff and evacuated back to New Zealand. Now, it was a long and arduous series of flights. He arrived back in New Zealand 10 days after surgery. His wound opened up again during his arduous trip home, transferred, retransferred, and he became badly infected. Now, he resulted in 18 months of medical treatment, ending in more surgery. He left the army in April 1984, suffering from depression after having completed two more tours of duty to Scott Base, actually. Stobie found adapting to ordinary civilian life increasingly hard. Now, since this event, his health plummeted. He had no idea what they'd injected him with, of course. And the Defence Department kept denying that anything had happened, no matter what he tried to say. Now, his health plummeted, uh, as I said, in the late 90s, and he developed a range of mysterious, unrelated ailments and he was finally diagnosed with chronic PTSD which is post-traumatic stress disorder in 2010 he said it's totally debilitating it just wrecks your life you can't function and of course the victims of PTSD they've barely been acknowledged in our country the sad and tragic irony of the Stoby case is that his bid for a war disability pension was initially rejected by Veterans Affairs because the Cold War was not a recognised conflict or emergency. What about his other fellow sappers in the same position that he was in? Well, they've all got complaints too, Graham. They've been bashed up and all sorts of things. Now, they all produced affidavits for each other that have all been now presented. And there's been a consistent number of cases from these sappers all supporting each other. They've got, they're very active on Facebook amongst each other too. They're all writing. It's just continuous daily postings all the time. So they're a well-organised group. Of course, some of them are getting near the end of their lives now. And Ian Stobie, he suffers a wide range of complaints. It's quite amazing now. And he was a super fit man. Everything was, was going for him and everything. Finally, it was only on the 25th of March of this year, 2018, that, that the Veterans Minister, Ron Mark, declared that in accordance with the Veterans Support Act 2014, service at the New Zealand Embassy in Moscow 
in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, which later became the Russian Federation, the men that served there to be operational for the purposes of the Act. And the, the declaration covered the New Zealand Armed Forces and the New Zealand Defence Force personnel. Ron Mark signs it off. I am satisfied that there was a significant risk of harm to those who undertook this service. So finally, they have been recognised. All right. Uh, the story of Lee Stobie, one of these engineers, our outsider's tale. And the fight for justice continues. And a little bit more about Lee Stobie when we return. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh. The fight for justice for a character called Lee Stobie and his colleagues, they were sappers who pretended to be civilians, were told to pretend to be civilians, actually on Cold War military operations, military in as much as they were working in the Soviet Union trying to rid the New Zealand embassy of bugs. And it wasn't all beer and skittles, quite traumatic for Les and some of the others as well, as they were uh, interrogated, hassled, beaten up, and intimidated, but had none of the diplomatic or military protocol protections because they were tacitly civilians. Okay, Jared, more about Les. He told me quite a lot about his time in Moscow. I mean, it wasn't without its joys as well, of course. He went there for the adventure, um, and he certainly signed up for a second tour of duty, but he talked about his first tour of duty there as a living hell he said he, he worked upwards of 96 hour weeks um, surveillancing the embassy and sometimes the guys worked around the clock for 24 hours or longer just to keep the embassy safe and he said many of his old colleagues uh, he since contacted are still very angry at the abuse of being made to work these hours and living in confined and extremely dusty environments almost all Always subject to asbestos, which the building was full of, and they were expected to pull out these wall linings all the time, and uh, both in the workplace, but also in their sleeping quarters. And old Les says, when I signed up, I, he said he wanted to help his country carry on the tradition established by his family. And he said, our deployment proved a bad deal, and now we aren't even being acknowledged for our service. Well. There has been a little bit of acknowledgement, of course, since then. But he said, there's no honour in it. We were just treated as disposable and spat out. It's part of our military history that needs to be acknowledged and addressed. And I firmly agree with that. But, you know, a spine, of course... Graham is nothing new in New Zealand. You know, we have been part of this allied relationship that puts us in there. Of course, we all know about Greenpeace and their 1985 incursion by the French Secret Service. You know, even more recently, 2004, there were two Israelis committed of passport fraud. They were almost definitely Mossad spies. What did America say to us about that? Oh, why don't make a big deal out of it? There was even um, a, a Dunedin private investigator, I think his name was Wayne Ida, he was hired by the exclusive brethren to spy on senior MPs, including Helen Clark and, and uh, husband Peter Davis. I mean, it's just astounding where this sort of surveillance 
goes on. And of course, the almost sort of humorous case, wasn't it, of 1974 um, senior civil servant and economist William Such arrested and uh, observed handing documents to KGB agents outside of Wellington public toilet and a year later he was acquitted of all charges too hard to prove of course but you know I think we have to be careful there saying there isn't any spine or there's no Russian agents in New Zealand I mean these things just happen and you know there's a lot of people that get caught up in this innocent people and they have no right of redress in our history they are true outsiders really Graham. So what is their situation at the moment? Well, he is still going for a disability pension. They've now accepted that he has several conditions, possibly to this chemical interrogation. That's been the very hardest thing for him to prove. All he's got is the affidavits of his comrades, really, to prove that. And, of course, they tried to contact the Russian hospital. Absolutely forget it. No record whatsoever, not even of his operation. But it was more that he had to be removed as he was recovering from the operation and then transferred like four or five times to get to New Zealand. He was initially, he kind of recovered, but it's just been downhill from there. And you know what it is? The main thing is, Graham, it's just a sheer anxiety. He wakes up terrified some days that maybe, you know, he's going to be interrogated again or anything. You know, it's a, it's just a post-traumatic stress disorder that we could never really anticipate. You know, if you've been held down by KGB spies in a run-down Russian hospital, injected with a truth serum, you don't know what's happened for perhaps, you know, a quarter of a day or so. Pretty terrifying to look back on, surely. So he hasn't got a war pension, a disability pension yet? Yeah, he's got a service pension, of course, but it's more about recognition because the actual extra pension isn't that much. But they haven't got the extra pension yet, the disability one. No, he hasn't got the full one yet. The active service pension, I think, is a little bit more than the service pension. Well, he got that when it was acknowledged. Uh, These vets were acknowledged that they were in a combat, literally a combat situation over there. So the Defence Department is trying to make perhaps some amends now, but honestly, when you talk to these guys, the level of frustration is so high. So they are just fed up with it. Whether or not Veteran Affairs, understaffed organisation or not, but to get anything out of them, everything has to be proven down to the letter of law. It's very hard to do when all your files have been destroyed. There isn't one file of their service that's now in existence. Well, that puts both parties in a very difficult position, doesn't it? Oh, extremely difficult. You've got to look at the character of these men. Ian Stobie, I mean, he's had generations of deployment, family tradition of military and everything else. They went to serve, but they were basically kicked over and spat on in a way. They, They couldn't even go outside the embassy for a walk, and they had to only talk to each other about the embassy outside the embassy. So, you know... There were people trying to listen all the time. Even the embassy staff had to go outside for critical conversations because that was the only place that wasn't bugged. It was amazingly thorough. The Russians are very thorough when they get going. 
it strikes me like they are involuntary spies. They were under no illusion it was going to be a secret operation, but they had no idea that all the Defence Department records would be destroyed or not even kept. They were so secret. The Defence Department actually uh, almost certainly made an application for the Archives New Zealand to destroy any information about them. And that wasn't so long ago. The Defence Department is, excuse the pun, very defensive when it's accused of anything, and it's been their culture. So I suppose, you know, there's a lot of cases that they're trying to hold down. They're scared in a way, I think, that there's going to be an avalanche of people coming forward. Uh, You know, this was caused when I was in Malaya. You know, that's what you get when you deploy people. You have to face the consequences. An intriguing story, and one does wonder... Uh, what else has not come to light of a similar nature because the evidence has been destroyed or people have simply uh, died. You know, it was such a secretive time, the intrigue of the Cold War. Jared, thank you very much. Oh, cheers, Graham. I can give you a heads up, a really early heads up for a couple of things that are happening next week. One will be late of a Sunday uh, evening because it's it's a difficult listen. I was shocked and enlightened. 
the world of human parasites. Don't tell anyone else. I don't want somebody to nick my idea. But this interview is in the can, and it's oh my godish. If you get what I mean. And also a character by the name of Imtiaz Shams, formerly of the uh, Saudi, uh, formerly of Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Kingdom. I think he lived there till he was ten, and then London. Um, he does amazing work in helping people who've left Islam. It can be a very, very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, it, when he decided he couldn't stay in um, his belief or the doctrine, he found he didn't have the belief. He thought he was the only person in the world that had ever stopped believing or was signing off from it. It's unbelievable, isn't it? He's a young man and he helps others. He's another brave person like our guest earlier, Liu Igwe. Um, most of the articles, oh, that'll be next week as well. MTS Shams is his name. Most of the articles from the weekend will be up. Uh, if they're not up now, they'll be up Monday. Um, from all the articles from Saturday and you'll hear Leo Igwe from today as well as John Divvig and Skeptical Thoughts and Media Stick with Paul Cassidy. Thank you so much for listening everybody um, and a special thank you if you've downloaded the podcast. A reminder that the Facebook page is there for basically for you to run around in like a bouncy castle, do what you like. I don't even moderate it. Who would, why would you even bother? Um, so yeah, go there. Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page. It's a neat little community of um, interesting folk. You can have your say and you'll get an early heads up during the week uh, of when I have a better idea of <laughs> what's going to be on the program. Alrighty, overnight talkback, the number is 0800-844-747, Have your say, and I hope we keep you great company. Overnight, I'll see you all next weekend. <laughs>